So do come and take a seat. There's some handouts at the chairs at the front to encourage us to sit at the chairs at the front. So while we're just settling down, can I uh, welcome everybody to this uh, Be Thinking talk. The Be Thinking talks are talks we've uh, occasionally run from the church here over the past few years. Uh, we started running them because there were students that we knew who were trying to get to grips with the various ideas that are circulating uh, in uh, university and uh, in academic study and seeing how those squared up with uh, Christian faith. Uh, so we felt that we didn't know the answers to some of the questions that were being asked, but we thought we knew people who did, so we asked them to come and speak uh, on various subjects uh, relevant in that sort of way. And uh, this evening we're carrying on in that tradition. So we're going to have a, a speaker, and then I hope there'll be time for questions afterwards. Uh, I think it simply remains for me to uh, tell you the title of the talk. Uh, no, I, actually what I was going to do was uh, just comment on the fact that this is the first meeting that we have held in this building since all this uh, was uh, finished. It's finished about three hours ago, I think. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we're just sort of experiencing the delights of having a mezzanine floor and lights and a door that closes and all things like that. So uh, we're, we're really pleased about that. Anyway, the talk is anti uh, Antichrist or Next Reformation, a Christian appraisal of postmodernism. I'm sure the speaker will explain all about uh, what that uh, title means. Uh, but I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Chris Watkin, uh, Dr. Chris Watkin. Uh, he did his PhD in contemporary French and postmodern philosophy. And uh, he's recently been, uh, as I understood it, he was a philosopher's labourer. But uh, that's probably not the right way of putting it. He's a research fellowship, it says here. It sounds much more posh. Um, and he's been studying recently uh, French philosophers and the fact that they're suddenly taking an interest, although they're atheist philosophers, been taking an interest in this whole matter of God. So uh, uh, he obviously knows a lot of things. So Chris, we're very pleased to have you here. A warm welcome to you and I'd ask you to address us please. Great, thank you Martin. Uh, given that I'm the first person who's speaking in the building since it's been redone, I, I feel that I ought to say something momentous at this point. But all I can say is that um, Brighton reminds me of Yorkshire. Um, I, I, I come, I'm working in Cambridge, and anyone who's been to Cambridge, one thing you know about it is that it's absolutely flat. There are no hills anywhere. And the first thing that I noticed when I came out of the train station here uh, was just how the wonderfully hilly Brighton is. Uh, and it did remind me of Barnsley, and that, which is where I come from originally. And then the second thing that I noticed was the uh, seagulls which reminded me of Bridlington, where I used to go on family holidays when I was really little. Um, so forever I'm going to associate Brighton with two wonderful memories of home and of family holidays when I was little. Um, thank you, Martin, for your introduction. Thank you for inviting me uh, to give this presentation as well. Um, 
it, it gave me the opportunity to, to work on these thoughts that I hadn't really put together before. Uh, so it's been really useful for me and I, I hope I'll be able to share something of what I've gained from preparing this evening um, with, with you. The, the way that I hope it'll work this evening is that I'll try and speak for no more than an hour in total um, and we'll have a break in the middle where you'll be able to ask any questions that you may have or make any comments that you may have on the first half of what I've said and then I'll plough on through uh, to the end and then hopefully there'll be an extended time for discussion where we can throw some ideas around between us uh, when we get to, to the end of what I'm going to say. Does everyone have one of these handouts? Uh, I think it's going to be really useful as we work through. So if you haven't got one, there's loads on the front here. Uh, feel free to grab one. In the late 1880s, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche published what was going to become one of the most famous parables in the whole of 20th century philosophy, introducing one of the most famous concepts in the whole of 20th century philosophy, which was to be the death of God. Uh, the parable is called the parable of the madman. Uh, and I, I want to begin what I've got to say this evening by just reading the parable of the madman in full. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way as a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their mist and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as though in an infinite nothing? And do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? 
must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed. And whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here, the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners. And they, too, were silent and stared back at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and it broke into pieces and he went out. I have come too early, he said. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wondering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further, Nietzsche continues, that on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his Requiem Eternum Deo. Led out and called to account, he said to always have replied nothing but, what after all are churches now, if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God? Well, it's typical Nietzsche with his flowing um, style, his huge rhetoric. Um, but it was a seminal moment in the history of philosophy. And what I want to begin by doing is just trying to unpack what it is that Nietzsche is saying in his own inimitable way in this parable. Remember that the, the madman who comes into the marketplace is speaking to non-believers, uh, people who already do not believe in God, and he warns them. He warns them of the consequences of killing God, uh, but of course they just laugh at him. See, the madman knows something that the unbelievers don't know. Uh, they remain relaxed at the news of God's death, uh, laughing at this frantic fool in the marketplace. But listen again to the madman's questions. Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? The madman's saying this, he's saying, God is dead but you haven't faced the consequences of that yet. Um, deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the most distant stars, he says. And the process of the 20th century's gradual facing up to those consequences of the death of God um, was eventually to take the name postmodernism. Um, you see, Nietzsche stands on the threshold of postmodernism. Uh, and in many ways, he can be understood as the prophet of postmodernism. Um, and what I want to argue in the first half of this presentation is that Nietzsche was right. He was actually right. Uh, we have killed God, but not the God of the Bible. And the terminal condition of God was actually diagnosed back in the 1600s. Uh, for anyone uh, who was around to notice it. But it was only really from the 1960s onwards that the consequences of the death of God really caught up with us. Um, so what we need to do, first of all, is take a step back in time and discover what it was that led up to Nietzsche's madman. 
um, and how we got to postmodernism in the first place. Um, I need to say as we begin, uh, as a matter of personal integrity, that much of what I'm going to say is drawing on the work of others. And the nature of it being an oral presentation, I can't always acknowledge who I'm drawing on. So just let me say up front um, who I've relied on for a lot of the material that I'm going to be using. Um, those of you familiar with the work of Don Carson uh, will see his influence in a lot of what I'm going to be saying. Uh, and anyone who's listened to or read much by uh, Tim Keller will also see his fingerprints all over this presentation. Let me take you back to Descartes, to begin with, uh, the philosopher René Descartes. Now, there have always been sceptics, but at the University of Paris in the 1600s, the sceptics were a particular pest. They were a pest to the Catholic Church, above all, um, and the Catholic Church rather thought that it ought to do something about these sceptics. So, uh, a particular cardinal called Cardinal de Berulle got in touch with a friend of his, Descartes, and asked Descartes if he wouldn't mind coming up with some philosophy that would refute these sceptics once and for all. Um, Descartes, being a good Catholic and knowing which side his bread was buttered on, decided that he'd better get to work on this. And what he did was he shut himself off in a room in his house. And Descartes tried to out-sceptic the sceptics. He thought, let's doubt everything that I possibly can. Um, hyperbolically, let, let, let's just... Anything that is, there's the minutest possibility that I can doubt, let's doubt that, and see what I'm left with. And then if I'm left with anything, I'll use that as the foundation of all my knowledge, and I'll build everything on that, because that's the thing that I can be sure about. So he set to work, and he found that he could doubt pretty much everything. But there was one thing that he noticed. Even when he was doubting, he was thinking that he was doubting. So he couldn't really doubt that he thought because in order to doubt he needed to think that he was doubting and then he'd be thinking so he thought okay well let's 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 try and use this as a foundation for existence and he came out with his uh, famous phrase i think therefore i am or in latin cogito ergo sum uh, and he tried to build the, the whole edifice of human knowledge on that foundation uh, the one thing that i can't doubt is that i think now philosophers have come up with many arguments against that since, but at the time it was pretty revolutionary. And it had a huge uh, consequence. The consequence was that whereas previously people attended to ground their understanding on God, they just said something like this, God knows everything, and God's chosen to reveal some of what he knows to us. Um, therefore, what I know is always a, a little bit of what God knows, and I know that it's true because, well, God wouldn't lie to me, would he? But Descartes completely changes that. Rather than starting with God, something outside me, Descartes starts with my thinking, something inside my head. The thing that I can be most certain of is, isn't God anymore, it's my own thinking. So that the first piece in the jigsaw of knowledge is now me, my thinking, inside my head. Then I work out from there um, to, to everything else that I know. 
And to the extent that you can pinpoint the start of a movement, uh, this is as good as any moment to pinpoint the start of what's called modernism. Um, modernism, the idea that you start with a sure foundation and then you build out from that using a particular method uh, to arrive at the knowledge that you have. And for Descartes, the foundation was the cogito. Um, so with Descartes, if you like, if you look at the handout, you've got the emergence of what you could call a box. Um, inside the box is what I'm most certain of, i.e. my own thinking. And only when I'm certain of that can I then move outside the box to the existence of the world around me, building upon the foundation of my own thinking. By the time you get to the 18th century and the Age of Enlightenment, uh, modernism's moved on quite a lot. And the division between inner and outer has got more pronounced. Um, the, the philosopher Immanuel Kant is probably um, the greatest thinker of the modern age and he went further than Descartes. Rather than just saying that my thinking is in here and then it works its way out, Kant said that well, it never really gets out at all. Um, time and space, Kant said, they're not really things out there but they're just categories that my understanding has of trying to process, trying to understand what's out there. Time and space are categories in here for the way that I make sense of the world. And therefore my experience of the world is always already processed by my mind into certain categories like time and space and causality. It's, it's a bit like seeing the world through a kaleidoscope. Um, you know, all, all the shapes and the colours and the movements, they're not really out there. They're just a result and effect of the mirrors in the kaleidoscope. And so for Kant, time and space are not really out there. They're ways that my understanding has of making sense of the world. Uh, the world as it appears to me through this kaleidoscope uh, is called the phenomenal world for Kant uh, and the world as it really is is called the noumenal world so you see for Kant the box has changed inside the box is what I experience the phenomena of space and time and everything else uh, and outside the box there's the noumena things as they really are but because they're outside the box I don't really have any experience of them as they are I only ever experience them in the categories of my own mind. So, whereas for Descartes it was just that I doubted what was outside me until I'd established a foundation for my thinking, uh, with Kant, well, my own thinking is all that I've got access to anymore. Uh, everything that I experience is always already processed through the categories of my understanding. Now, like Descartes, Kant did this with the best of intentions. Uh, in the second preface to his best-known work, The Critique of Pure Reason, he says that what he's trying to do is um, to limit reason, to make room for faith. Um, in other words, Kant's thinking was a little bit like this. If, if all that I know are phenomena, then, well, that leaves God a lot of space outside my knowledge that won't be swallowed up by reason. And God can quite happily exist out there um, without bothering me and without me bothering him. 
um, Kant thought that he was clearing space for God. But it leaves us with a bit of a problem. And the problem is this. What sort of God can fit into Kant's schema? Well, the answer is not very much of one. And all you can really say about Kant's God is that it, can't really talk about he, exists. Um, in the final sentence of an article that Kant wrote entitled The Only Possible Support of an Argument in Favour of the Existence of God, uh, he writes this. It is absolutely necessary that one should convince oneself that God exists, that his existence should be demonstrated, is not so necessary. So you see, because God can't be known, God is just a useful concept in Kant's system. Um, it's a, a cosmic guarantor of certain laws. It's sort of a God behind the scenes who's making sure that everything holds together. But this God never steps onto the stage and takes a speaking role. It's much more of God as an idea than God as a person. Um, and this is called the God of the Philosophers. Um, it's a really helpful term, the God of the Philosophers, because it allows us to distinguish the real God uh, the God of the Bible who reveals himself in the scriptures um, and ultimately in the Jesus of the scriptures um, it allows us to distinguish that God from the philosophical God as a concept um, now Kant was by no means the first philosopher to think of God in this conceptual way um, but his thinking did provide an important milestone on the road to postmodernism it's worth pointing out that both Descartes and Kant were confessing Christians. Um, Descartes within a Catholic tradition and Kant brought up in a pietistic tradition. Um, and equally, our third milestone on the road to postmodernism, Jochen Kierkegaard, uh, was also a committed Christian. Um, in fact, it was his Christian commitment that drove him to write what he did in his philosophy. Just like uh, Paul in the Bible in Acts 17, Kierkegaard was distressed he was distressed by the religion that he saw around him in 19th century Danish Protestantism. Because what he saw around him was essentially a dead religion. It was a religion that was only ritual and exterior um, and that seemed to have no living meaning for the people who claimed to believe it. It was some empty shell of a religion that filled people's heads but never changed their lives. And with Kierkegaard, the box again becomes tighter. Um, inside the box, now you've got this dry reason, this meaningless ritual, this exterior show. But real meaning, true experience of God, are outside the box. They're outside reason, outside rationality now. So, for Kierkegaard, the only way to get a real proper authentic experience of God is, is to find a way of getting outside the box with all its rationality and its careful thinking to leave all that behind and to embrace a God who can't be contained in any language or in any ritual or in any institution um, he called this the leap of faith it's worth pointing out that the leap of faith isn't actually a biblical idea it, it, it's not a term that's used in the Bible at all it's a term that comes from Kierkegaard uh, and it relies on this division between meaningless reason inside the box and meaningful irrationality outside the box. 
Um, you see, anything inside the box can be known, but it's trivial. And outside the box is what is of great ultimate meaning, but it's beyond expressible experience. So for Kierkegaard, there's a choice between uh, reason and experience, uh, between a ritualistic faith and an existential faith, a faith that touches my existence. And indeed, Kierkegaard is the forerunner of 20th century existentialist philosophy. Um, he's called an existentialist philosopher because he maintained that religion must be something that we experience, something that touches our existence, not just a dry formal list of facts that fill our heads. So once more, Kierkegaard had the best of intentions. Um, he thought that dry ritualistic religion was not true religion. Um, and as a Christian, I'd want to agree with him. He thought that God needed to be experienced, not just known as a set of facts. And his philosophy is one of how we can have an existential apprehension of God, not just a ritual, rational knowledge of God. And from Kierkegaard, it's only one small step um, to Nietzsche and Nietzsche's madman. Just before we take that step, let's recap where we've got to. Um, we've got to a point where God has become utterly detached from the everyday world. Uh, for Kant, it's because we can't really think about God as he is at all. Uh, God's reduced to a concept. For Kierkegaard, at the other extreme, it's a God who's an experience beyond words or beyond any reason. Now, all you need now is for a philosopher called Hegel to come along uh, also a professing Christian, incidentally, and to say that everything is historical and changes with time. Uh, and what you've got is you've locked this box shut and you've thrown away the key. There's, there's nowhere meaningful left for God to be. Uh, nowhere outside the flow of history for God to reside. No way we have, could have, of communicating with any God who may or may not be out there. And so we get to Jacques Derrida, uh, for my money, one of the most impressive and formidable uh, postmodern thinkers of the 60s to 2000s. He died in 2005. Of course, Derrida is not the only postmodern thinker, but there's so much vague and wishy-washy critique of postmodernism out there in general that I think it's going to be more useful just to focus on one thinker um, and try and understand what they're saying, get to grips with their thought, uh, rather than trying to cherry-pick ideas from lots of different thinkers out of context. Um, thinkers who incidentally violently disagreed with each other a lot of the time. Derrida buys into this box idea of reality. Uh, but for him, the box is language. You remember, for Kant, the box was the structures of our understanding. Uh, so everything is filtered through my understanding. Um, and that meant that we could have no direct experience of what Kant called the noumenal world. Um, remember, for Kierkegaard, the box was rationality. Well, for Derrida, the same role is played by language. It's language that chops up the world into bite-sized pieces for, for me to experience. Um, but language doesn't reach outside itself to tell me about the world. Um, it always looks inwards. It's a bit like this. The French uh, have two words. 
fleuve and rivière. Uh, and the English have two words, river and stream. Now, the difference between a fleuve and a rivière is that a fleuve flows into the sea and a rivière doesn't. Um, but the difference between river and stream in English is just a matter of size. Okay? So the French, poor things, have no experience of river or stream. Um, the, the flux of reality just isn't chopped up that way for them by their language. It's chopped up differently. Uh, language just doesn't construct their world in that way. Um, now, if you accept, if you accept that principle and you roll it out to the whole of language, you end up uh, with a position where the world of meaningful things in which I live, move and have my being, is really just a world of meaningful concepts, not things. Concepts that attach to particular words. You see, there's no meaningful reality out there. It's just the way that my language chooses to present things to me. It's what Derrida calls logocentrism. And he's fond of using long words. This is one of them. Logocentrism. Uh, logos is um, a, a word that's used throughout the whole of the history of philosophy. Um, right from the, the very earliest Greek philosophers. Uh, it's got a whole range of meanings. Uh, but the one meaning that's relevant for us now is it means something like the reason or the motive of life. Um, so the logos of life is what life is all about. Um, as someone's expressed it, the logos of an espresso machine is making espresso, not popping popcorn. So for Derrida, logocentrism is the attitude that thinks that life has a meaning. There is a logos. But that's only because of the meanings that language gives to things for Derrida. So logocentrism is a state of being fooled by language into thinking that there really is a meaning. And this is one of the consequences of the death of God. In his book, The Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche makes the following observation. Uh, Nietzsche says, I am afraid we are not yet rid of God because we still have faith in grammar. I'm afraid we are not yet rid of God because we still have faith in grammar. What he means is this. Once you get rid of the ultimate logos, the ultimate meaning, then the other logoi, little meanings, start unravelling as well. Uh, one of them is the logos of language. Another is the idea of human nature, that there's something that we all share in common. Another idea would be the meaningfulness of the distinction between good and evil. And what Nietzsche is saying is, once you start getting rid of God, it becomes very difficult indeed to keep hold of these other logoi, these other ideas of meaning. You can understand Derrida's predicament in the following terms. Um, in terms of the singular and the universal. Uh, now the singular is, is that which is unique, it's unrepeatable, it's a one-off, like a human being. You know, there could never be two yous. Um, and the universal is that which is repeatable uh, and therefore not unique. Um, like language, you know, I can use a particular word as many times as I want in as many different situations as I want. Um, language is repeatable in that way. Now, for Derrida, existence, if there is such a thing, is singular. 
but my experience is constructed by language which sort of freezes this singular in a repeatable form and betrays it, makes it rigid whereas in fact it's not like that at all it reduces this unknowable reality to, uh, to a universal form of language it, if you like it presents a graven image of what can never truly properly be expressed within language now this, this is the second Derrida word for, for the day uh, Derrida calls this totalizing uh, when something inexpressible is presented in language as if it could be exhaustively expressed he calls that totalizing think of it this way imagine that I've got two boxes here in front of me uh, one box is for small green squares uh, and there's another box for large blue triangles and then something comes along that's really neither a small blue square nor a large blue triangle and I've got to decide which box to put it in so I choose one or the other depending on which criterion I want to pick either its size or its colour or its shape something about it that may suggest one slightly more than the other but it would be wrong to say that the thing that I put in the box is a small green square or a large blue triangle and then another object comes along slightly different from the first object uh, and I put it in the same box but I couldn't say that it's exactly the same as the first one even if it's nearly the same it'll never be exactly the same size and shape and everything and that's Derrida's problem with language because it gives us a finite number of boxes to put things in uh, whichever word we choose it's never going to be exactly right because language is repeatable and it can never do justice to the singular you see we can pile words and words on top of each other but we'll never have done enough to express the singular adequately within language if you want to put it in Christian terms uh, for Derrida all language is an idol it pretends to make present something that cannot be present in experience it's a false image and so the conclusion that you've got to come to if you're Derrida is that you mustn't take language too seriously if I really believe that the words that I use give me perfect access to reality for Derrida well that makes me a logocentric idolater so I need to recognize that language always totalizes always gives me access to nothing beyond its own web of interrelated meanings and so I become suspicious of neat logic and categories that language tries to box things up into now again this is at least in part done with the best of intentions and um, to put things in linguistic boxes and leave them there for Derrida it's not just untrue it's actually wrong it's evil it's like saying all Yorkshiremen wear flat caps or more seriously all Muslims are suicide bombers it's insulting we don't like that sort of totalizing language but if that's what all language does all the time you see you've got a major problem if you're Derrida and 
to resist that sort of totalizing then becomes your ethical duty. So you can see how if you buy into this framework, like Derrida, um, where what I claim to know is so dependent on my language, well, it makes very little sense to tell somebody else that they're wrong. Because there's nothing outside us both and above us both to arbitrate between our two positions. It makes no sense to argue over truth because there's no one thing that we're both arguing about. It's not that our two positions are equally true, it's just that asking the question of truth doesn't even make sense. Um, There's no logos to decide between us. It's like asking which is truer, a sink or a set square. How do you propose to begin to answer? It depends what you want to use it for. Depends what the context is, you see. Well, that's enough Derrida for now. Uh, we, we can come back to him during the um, discussion time if you want. L- let me just try and draw this together with four um, summary points. First of all, modernism thinks that if you get the foundation right and you build on it correctly, you'll arrive at universal truths. Truths that are the same for everyone at all points of history wherever on the earth you are. Universal truths. Second point, postmodernism thinks it's not as simple as that. That our logocentric language doesn't give us any truth that lies beyond it. It just gives us its own truth. Thirdly, that there's no real clear line between modernism and postmodernism. Postmodernism really just walks modernism through to its own conclusions, like Nietzsche's madman in the marketplace. And fourth, the God who dies in all this is the God of the philosophers. Uh, The God that we've seen becoming more and more redundant ever since Descartes. Uh, The God who dies in this is not the God of the Bible. Now, it's worth saying at this point um, that this sort of thinking is by no means universal uh, in our society or in any society today. Um, Richard Dawkins, for one example, uh, would be and is scathing of this sort of thinking. Um, Dawkins is working much more in a modernist paradigm. Uh, And people we meet on the street uh, will probably get some of their understanding of the world from modernism and some of it from postmodernism, as well as other sources as well. Now, a postmodern critique of Dawkins would be to say that he's like the people in the marketplace that the madman visits, uh, yelling and laughing, but not realising the consequences of what they themselves have done. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a moment um, and open the floor if anyone has any questions or comments just on, the, um, just on that. And then we'll, we'll deal with anything arising out of that material and then I'll go on afterwards to the second half. So does anyone have anything that they want to say about that? If there's anything that was unclear, please say, and I'll, I'll try my best to, to clarify. What do you know of the um, experience of these philosophers as they came to further conclusions, the sort of conclusions that you're expressing? And were they getting, um, a lot of people talking now about their thinking mm-hmm. so much about how they reacted to what they were finding? Well, 
Nietzsche went mad. Um, Derrida didn't. I think I think that the, the caricature of these philosophers sometimes is that they take great glee in the lack of meaning you know, and dance about on God's grave. Um, there are some philosophers who have done that, not these. Um, that, that is a caricature of the postmodern attitude. The, the experience of a lot of these people is, is a very poignant experience um, because their understanding of the world doesn't allow them some things that they know they need. So, um, ethics is the point where this really comes into sharp focus. Um, so, no, no, none of these people that I'm talking about, well, certainly not Derrida, would go around saying, oh, there is no good and evil, that's great, let's all just do what we want, and, you know, if you want to kill someone, that's fine, you go, no, no, no. But he's got to try and find a way of being able to say, it is important that I protect the life of someone else from within his philosophy. So what you see in, in a lot of these thinkers and what you see in, in the late Derrida particularly is they're sort of tying themselves in knots trying to provide a way within their thinking to be able to do ethically what, arrive ethically at where they want to arrive. So my experience of a lot of their writing is is of a, a poignant, um, very human search for meaning within a universe that, in their way of thinking, doesn't allow them that meaning. Totalizing is the, the language that assumes that it has said what there is to be said about something when it's, when it's spoken. So, um, if, if, if I say X is Y, then as far as language is concerned, it's a done deal. There you go, X is Y, closed case. Um, but what people like Derrida are saying is that's always inadequate. You, you've, you've never captured it completely. Experience is just more complicated than that. Um, that there's always a remainder uh, beyond what you've tried to put in the box in language. Um, so, so you've tried to totalise it, you've tried to say everything there is about it, you, you haven't succeeded. Um, experience doesn't accommodate itself to language in that way. I think that's what he said. Doesn't Derrida's theory defeat itself because he's explaining this all through language? Yeah, thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a common um, critique of Derrida. I think the way that I'd want to answer it is saying, what do you do if you're Derrida? Okay. So, you, you believe that, that language is, is inadequate to express truth. Uh, not, not that it is utterly impotent, but that it is inadequate. Um, well, you, you express that using language in a way that, that shows both 
the inadequacy and the potency of language, if you like. So if, if you read a passage of Derrida, um, he is circling around ideas, he's using plays on words, he's sort of drifting from one thing to another. Um, and I think what he's trying to do is say in his language, the way that he uses language, sort of reflecting that, what he's wanting to say, which is that language is, is this fuzzy sort of instrument. So it's, it's, it's a helpful comment, but I don't think it undermines what he's trying to do, because he's not saying that we can never say anything at all in language, you know, full stop, signed, Derrida. That's, that's not what he's doing. He's, he's just pointing to languages inadequacy and, and he, he reflects that in the way that he writes. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say in the second half that, that there's a lot that, that Christians would have, I think, an innate sympathy for in what he's saying, um, which would probably be a good moment to press on to the second half. I, I don't want things to slip too much. Okay. Uh, what I want to do in the second half now is think more constructively. Um, first of all, what lessons may there be in postmodern thinking for Christians? Um, and secondly, I want to think as well about how Christians might be uniquely well-placed uh, to answer and minister to a postmodern culture. Um, I, I'm not tending, intending this next session to be philosophically rigorous in any way. Um, it's a reflection that comes out of a number of conversations that I've had with people, uh, largely in Christianity Explored courses over the past few years. The first useful thing uh, that postmodernism does is that it follows through on the consequences of the death of God. If there really is no God, if death really is the end, then we lose not only God, but we lose human beings and language and ethics as well. And, you know, I, I think the Bible agrees with postmodernism here. Uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author tries to make sense of the world as he calls it, under the sun. Uh, the world with reference only to the world, not the next world and not to God. Let's try and make sense of life just here and now as it is, without any reference to God. Um, one theologian said that in Ecclesiastes, death is the black wall into which all human endeavours crash. Uh, and the key word to sum up life under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity, uh, or in the NIV it's translated meaningless. Without reference to God, you can't hold on to any meaning in the world. And again, it's exactly the same as Nietzsche's madman is saying. Uh, Nietzsche's madman says, are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? And so I think Christians could do worse than affirm this postmodern insight, um, saying that it is intellectually dishonest to want to get rid of God and at the same time to try to keep realities that only make sense if there is a God. 
Um, it's, it's Dostoevsky's observation in the Brothers Karamazov. If God is dead, well, everything's permitted. And it's William Golding's conclusion that if God is dead, if man is the highest, good and evil are decided by majority vote. Philosophically, you could say what we're talking about here is you can't get an imperative out of an indicative. You can't go from an is to an ought. That's why you can't get ethics in a godless universe. Because in a godless universe, all there is is what there is. If something is made for a purpose, you see, it has a right and a wrong use. But if it just is, if, if it has no purpose, well then there's no right or wrong way to use it. So, is postmodernism a threat to Christians at this point? Uh, does it undermine our belief? By no means. Actually, precisely the opposite is the case. Because to live under the sun is not to live in the real world. There is a God. And for Christians, death is not the black wall into which all human endeavours crash. Because the very death that renders the wisdom vain in the book of Ecclesiastes is the same death that Christ has won the victory over on the cross. So, in 1 Corinthians 15 that I printed on the handout, Paul can write, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. That is a uniquely Christian perspective. In the Lord, your labour is not in vain. Death is not the buffers for the Christian. Death is swallowed up in victory. It is not meaningless. See, our labour as Christians won't be obliterated by death, but it'll be changed, transfigured, purified, glorified. And therefore the Christian alone can throw herself into this world with all seriousness, uh, into the arts and the sciences, into relationships, into projects, knowing that death will not make a meaningless joke of them. So, I want to suggest we don't say to the postmodern at this point, oh, you've got it wrong, everything's not meaningless. Rather we say, yes, you're right, you're painfully, agonisingly right. But just consider the possibility that there's more to life than what is under the sun that under the sun isn't everything that there is. 
but then wouldn't the postmodern come back and say something like, well, <laughs> even if there is something beyond the sun, I could never know it. Because all my experience is linguistically mediated and I can have no experience of the absolute. And that would be a good opportunity to talk about the distinctively Christian understanding of Logos. You see, for both modernism and postmodernism alike, uh, Logos is reason, uh, rationality, calculation, logic. But for the Christian, Logos is not a concept, it's not an idea, he's a person. This is the point that John's making at the beginning of his Gospel uh, that I printed on the handout. Um, when John uses the word word here, um, in, in the Greek that he was writing in, it's, it's Logos. Okay, so he's talking about Logos. In the beginning was the word, the Logos. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Christian says, yes, there is a logos to life, a meaning, a purpose, a truth. Um, but it's not a truth bought, brought by a person. It is a person. And to find the reason of life, the meaning of life, is to know him, to know Jesus. So Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a, a way of life. As the Christianity Explored course puts it, Christianity is Christ. And to know a, a person, of course, is not the same thing as to know a fact. Even to know a fact about a person. So, postmoderns are, are suspicious of propositional language, the sort of language that says, this is that. You know, this is a large blue square. But for the Christian, truth is not ultimately propositional. Um, hear me well, I'm not saying that truth isn't propositional, I'm saying that truth is not ultimately propositional. There is something more fundamental than propositions. A, a logos that underwrites the truth of propositions, and his name is Jesus. So again, for the Christian, the truth about the universe is not a fact like it is for the naturalist inside the box, 
and it's not a mystical experience uh, like it is for the mystic who tries to escape from the box. Uh, for the Christian, the truth about the universe, the most fundamental thing about the universe, the meaning of the universe, is a person, God, Father, Son and Spirit. You can't reduce a person to a list of facts. That's the whole point that the postmodernist is trying to make. And you can't dissolve a person in a mystical experience. So you see, Christ as a Logos doesn't really fit this schema of the box. He's, he's neither mere fact within the box, nor meaningless mystical experience outside the box. And, th and that's the second point that I want to make from John 1. Um, it's that our experience of the Logos, for John, isn't the result of us finding a clever way to get out of the box. No, no, we, we remain inside. And it's the Logos who comes to join us. Uh, it, this truth is all over that extract that I read out. Uh, the light shines in the darkness, John says. He was in the world. He came. The, world be the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the postmoderns, I think, are right. Any attempt to arrive at Logos through our everyday experience of the world or through the use of human reason is always inadequate. But the box is shut in that sense. But for the Bible, the onus is not on us to poke our heads outside the box to find out what's out there in reality, what, what the ultimate meaning of the universe is. Now, God took the initiative and himself entered the box in a way that we could understand. And what better way is there of communicating with us than becoming one of us? So, it's God who speaks, not we who speak about God. Uh, the postmodern fear, if you remember, is that anything that I say will be totalising. And it's true. Anything that I can dream up to say about God is bound to misrepresent him in some way or another at some point. But what if the shoe's on the other foot? What if it's God who does the talking? What if the responsibility for using language is his, not mine? Well, that's the Christian claim. The responsibility isn't ours to break out of the box, to break out of human language to find God. Now, God himself took the initiative to break in to our experience, to use our language himself. So we don't think our way up to God. No, he stoops down to us. The movement's not bottom up, if you like, but top down. So yeah, the, the Bible would agree God is invisible. But Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. So this great division between language and truth uh, is not an absolute division for Christians because the word, the Logos, has become flesh. Let me try and sum up. Um, I think I'm going to leave the last section uh, at the top because it would be a shame not to have time to discuss these ideas together. So, so just let me try and conclude in a couple of sentences now. Um, 
postmodernism is neither the Christian's friend nor the Christian's enemy exclusively. Um, that's what I was getting at with the title. Uh, one guy published a book suggesting that postmodernism was the next reformation. Unless the church embraces this idea, um, Christianity will die. Um, other people on the opposite extreme have said, you know, Christianity is pretty much the contemporary antichrist. If, if we go anywhere near it, it'll end up destroying us. Um, I think neither of those is the case. Uh, like all philosophies, postmodernism is a mixed bag. Um, it provides opportunities and it provides barriers to the cause of the gospel. Um, but we've got good news for the person with a postmodern outlook. Uh, good news of a word become flesh to live among us and to die for us on the cross, rescuing us uh, from our rebellion against God and from the anger of a God who, as if we'd have... Um, if we'd had time to look at it, in Acts 17, calls on people everywhere to repent, modern and postmodern alike. Now, I'm going to stop there for the moment. Um, it would be good to hear um, any comments or reactions or questions that you have to anything that I've been saying or anything else about postmodernism that, that I haven't had a chance to touch on. Um, and hopefully we can get a, a dialogue going about some of these ideas. So do feel free. Uh, to throw out anything that you have. Actually, the title, I didn't quite fully understand it. I can understand what you're saying, that uh, some people are saying that postmodernism is the new reformation. Um, so, if we don't go along with it, Christianity dies. I wonder if that, perhaps, is expressed in terms nowadays of what we might call ecumenism or something like that. I don't know. But I don't understand the Antichrist bit, what you were saying. Some, some Christians... Uh, did everyone hear the question? Good. Okay. Some Christians um, wed their Christianity so strongly to modernism that they end up defending modernism as if it were the gospel. So they defend this idea that, you, you, like with Descartes, you've got to start with a firm foundation and then you build out from there inexorably and you get to some sort of universal truth. Okay? Um, and because of the, the history of Christianity, um, the, that idea has got so entwined with the way that they understand Christianity itself to be, um, that they see be that because postmodernism questions modernism, they think that it's questioning biblical Christianity. And so they fight tooth and nail against postmodernism, saying that you know, this is the, the, the absolute line that we need to defend. Whereas what I think that's happening a lot of the time is that they're actually defending modernist philosophy, which they've confused a great deal with biblical Christianity. Well, if, if modernism is so caught up with Christianity then the thing which undermines modernism would be the Antichrist. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't packing a whole load of theology into the use of that word. It's more of a provocative title than, than something that had a great deal of thinking behind it. It says you've heard that Antichrist will come and now many Antichrists have come. That's exactly the way John uses the phrase. There isn't really an Antichrist. There is a spirit of Antichrist. 
Yeah, something which is against. The problem we have actually is that many of our bases of faith and our evangelical statements are couched in the language of modernism, and I think it's very difficult to 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 change this without sowing out something that's without sowing out the baby with the bathwater. You know, what the logos does to me in John's view of the logos is precisely this point to say that it guarantees the use of meaning, which I think is what you're saying. But we have to we have to have meaning in the sense that that John means it, and not in the sense that that Descartes means it, as, as you say. I, I I agree with you there. I, it is absolutely not the conclusion of what I've been saying that we should throw out all our doctrinal statements because they are propositions about God. I think what what we need to realise is that if if truth is personal, which I think is is, is what the Bible is saying, truth is a person, Jesus, I am the truth, I am the way, the truth and the life. Nevertheless, it is possible to communicate things about a person using propositions. Just because you can't communicate exhaustively everything about who they are in their singularity doesn't mean that propositions are useless. So to say um, of Jesus that, that he is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, is, is incredibly important but it's at the point that we, we start to think that that is at bottom what truth is, you see. That, that there's, there's, no, there's no person involved that I think it becomes dangerous. So I absolutely keep propositions, just remember what they are. I think you, you put your finger on something really important there, brother. I, I think that the moment, I mean, surely this must be the case, the moment that we divide the truth of Christ from what it means to know Christ experientially, uh, we've, we've made a division that the Bible doesn't make. You know, to, to, to know a person is to, to know them with the whole of who I am. So my, my mind is engaged, my feelings are engaged. Um, <laughs> you know, even my physicality is engaged as well. And so, one of the things that I would have gone on to say is that it's, it's important for us in engaging with a, a postmodern mindset that's, as you very rightly say, critical of statements and cynical 
about statements as well. You know, we say, oh, God is love, God is faithful, you can trust God. I say, yeah, right. You know, that would be lovely. Um, And I'm sure that's a thought that comforts you, but I've I've never met anyone that I can trust like that. And if if we still keep saying that, but we also um, live together in community in a way that, that demonstrates that, that shows the truths that we're speaking with our lips, um, then, you know, then by God's grace, um, people may begin to give some credit to what we're saying because it's not just words anymore. And, and again, I think this is a profoundly biblical idea. So in Titus 2.10, um, Paul's talking to slaves and he's saying, look, um, make sure that you, you act well as slaves and in that way you will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. So he's saying that, that the way that you are, the way that your life is, is an apologetic for the Gospel. So it's not that it replaces it, there's still the teaching about God our Saviour, but it's that your life is showing people that, oh, this is really attractive, they're, they're living differently, they have got a, a love that I don't see, there is a trust among these people, there's a genuineness and authenticity that I don't see. Perhaps I'll check out what it is that they believe. Um, so, and I think one thing that perhaps, um, to, to generalise, um, but nevertheless I think there's a grain of truth in this, perhaps one thing that, that more charismatically inclined churches often do is, is precisely um, don't sever that link between um, belief and, and behaviour. Now, you, you could say that sometimes they, they go soft on the belief, etc., etc., but you know, it's case by case, isn't it? But, but I think there's something definitely for for us to learn from the Bible and from perhaps the charismatic movement in that respect. We are as persons, we are in the image of God, so there is something for him to relate to in that sense. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, It's not trying to bridge... Uh, an infinite gulf when God uh, tries to speak to us. Uh, because as you, as you very helpfully say, we are made in his image. Um. I mean, to, to me, I mean, on the charismatic issue, the, the problem to me of much charismatic theology, and it does vary, as you said, is that it, it actually denies the possibility of categorisation um, because it says it absolutizes experience because which is a postmodern view that you know the experiences immediate experience is all we have and therefore it does become impossible to say that anything is wrong if it has the right feeling. And what you consider to be the right feeling, of course, it can be anything you like, but you know, it's usually, usually that right feeling is highly constructed, in fact, um, around a, a social way of doing things. Um, and to me, this, was, this has always been my fear of, of charismatic theology, is that, it, it, that if you take it at its face value, the experience is the defining concept. And you know, when you get something like, say, the Toronto Blessing, you have no categories for discussing it. So if you abandon meaning in a postmodern sense entirely, then, you, then of course you have no, 
you have no meaning left, really. You have only your experience. That's, that's very helpful. I, I think, again, it comes down to the idea that, that for Christians, truth is a person. I am the truth. How do you get to know a person? Well, they, they reveal themselves through their words. Um, anyone who I've ever got to know, I've, I've got to know through speaking and listening to them. So the idea that, that we could know Jesus outside language in some way seem, seems to me a nonsensical claim. So, so I, I think it, it comes back for, for, both, for both the conservative evangelical and the charismatic to, to what does it mean to know a person. Words, categories alone, if they remain sort of dry categories, are, are not sufficient. I, I can know a lot about someone without knowing them. Um, a lot of theologians know a great deal about God, but they don't know him. But similarly, on the other hand, to suggest that, that I can know God adequately uh, apart from the way that God reveals himself in language, I, I suspect is often quite an, an arrogant position, um, not listening to what God himself has told us, but trying to know him some other way. Drawing a link between um, postmodern thought and uh, pluralist kind of view of religion. So, if you divide everything into sort of propositions and experience, then different religious beliefs are just different um, ways of trying to express the inexpressible in language. Um, so, you know, they might seem to be different. It's like you're putting God into a blue square box or a green triangle box. Um, it, it, they're completely inadequate. But then what really matters is the experience. So if you, if you find that your concept of God um, sort of works, gives you the right experience of God, then it's authentic in some way. Can you comment on that sort of thing? Thank you. Um, le let me see if I've understood the question. Um, you're saying that the, the way that people often approach belief today is what lights your fire? What, what does it for you? You know, for me, it's Jesus. Uh, for you, it's crystals. And for the guy down the road, it's, it's you know, whatever. Um, surely the fact that that does something for you is what it's all about. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. Um, well, it, it, in a sense, it, it depends where you start from. If you start from the fact that there is no truth that we can know anyway, then all you're really left with is, you know, what does it for you? So that would be quite a reasonable thing to say if you've already come to the conclusion that there's no knowable, meaningful, trans-historical, trans-personal truth. Um, but it's an odd position to start with, given that the Christian claim is that precisely the word has been made flesh, uh, and therefore there is something beyond 
what makes me feel good and what makes you feel good wonderfully um, and it would appear to me that it would be better to start with that claim and to decide whether that is indeed the case before you assume that there's nothing out there to know anyway so let's just find what makes me feel good yeah I, I, I think that's right I was just sort of I mean that's the way most uh, generally people think nowadays I think about you know um, you have your view of God and I have mine and you know yours makes you feel happy and makes you enjoy life and makes you a nice person so that's great but for me a completely different set of propositions um, works for me so uh, maybe if I just put it in a related question which is how do these ideas get from the, the academy down to the bloke on the street let, because, me, let me answer your first sorry one. yeah, yeah that's um, <laughs> perhaps I, I, I think what this is sort of shining a light on is the fact that most people today it's not that they don't believe in the Christian God it's that they, they don't have the categories in place that fit the Christian God at all um, it's that when, when Billy Graham went round doing his crusades in the 1950s wonderfully by God's grace um, most people who didn't believe in God didn't believe in the Christian God uh, that is they, the, the God that they rejected was the God of the Bible which meant that they had all the right categories in place they just didn't think they were true whereas today um, you can't assume that anymore you can't assume that people believe that we live in a universe that was created by God therefore owned by God therefore we're accountable to him therefore our actions have meaning uh, that we've turned away from him um, that we sit under his judgment because of that um, and that therefore it would be an appropriate thing or a possible thing to do for him to come and rescue us so you, today you know you say something like Christ died for our sins um, and people say oh how, how touching what a, what a touching gesture that would be so unless you've got these categories in place of creation and accountability and, and turning away from God um, you can't make sense of the Christian message so perhaps what the person who's saying you know that X does it for you Y does it for me what we would need to do is do the sort of thing that Paul does in Acts 17 when he's speaking to people who don't have the Jewish Old Testament categories rattling around in their head we just take it right back to the beginning say okay let me let, let me explain to you what sort of a world it is that we live in um, we didn't come here by chance um, there was one God and he, he made everything that there is he made you in fact um, and therefore your life is not your own um, you're his creature um, and, and he put you here um, and in fact you know that because even some of your people say we are his offspring um, and if you want their equivalence of that in our society but hold on you, you say we're his offspring yet you also make images that's not right is it because if you're dependent on God then what are you doing making little gods that are dependent on you that doesn't work and in the past God was indulgent with you but, but now God calls upon all people everywhere to repent and, and you better pay attention to that because he's set a day when he's going to come back 
and he's going to judge the world by the man that he's appointed. And we know that that's true, that I'm not just saying this, because he's actually raised that man from the dead. In, in history, on a particular day, there was this man who was raised from the dead. So you see what he's done? He's, he's, he's got to the gospel, he's got to the resurrection, but he's, he started right back at the beginning. And he's built up a whole Christian worldview into which the gospel makes sense. So if, if we are living in a world created by God and he's in control and we're dependent on him and we know that, but we've turned our back on him, then God coming to die and rise again, you can see why he would do that, why he would need to do that. Um, so perhaps if someone is, sorry, this is a very long answer, perhaps if someone is saying, um, you know, Jesus does it for you and my thing does it for me, um, what we'd need to do is, is go back and just lay those foundations of world, the Christian worldview within which the gospel makes sense. expresses a desire to understand the world, the biggest problem just seems to be a general apathy where people don't really care and don't want to understand the world and yeah. um, it's just about experience. There's no good, there's no bad, it's just what you do and, and you know, it, it seems to be a much bigger barrier. If people are thinking about their existence in the first place, it makes it much easier, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. There are, there are certain things that one can say to try and get under the skin of people who take that sort of an attitude, um, depending, of course, on the context and on the relationship with the person. Um, you can show how tolerance is, is the most intolerant attitude that there is, um, you know, sort of along the lines of um, you, you believe um, that it's wrong to criticise other people's views, Yes, 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 I, I believe that it's wrong to criticise other people's views, we're tolerant of every position. Um, but what about um, the Christian over there who believes that some people's views are better than others? Should we tolerate that? Um, oh, well, no, if, if she's intolerant towards other people's views, then we can't tolerate her. Um, okay, well, should we tolerate anyone then who is, for whatever reason, intolerant towards other people's views? Well, or no, if they're intolerant, they shouldn't be tolerated, that's the whole point. So, so then you say, well, well, tell me, do you tolerate anyone who doesn't agree with you? Uh, do you tolerate anyone who disagrees with the view that it is wrong to criticise other people's views? And if you don't, well, then your tolerance is the most intolerant view of all. Because it doesn't seek to engage, it doesn't seek to persuade, like my Christianity does. Uh, it just forecloses disagreement. Plus, it appears that you can't keep your own tolerance room. So, you know, you can try and help people to see some of the potential inconsistencies in the way that, the, that they think. Another thing that you could do is if someone uh, is coming from a, a naturalistic uh, view of the world. And of course, you know, these things can be done in a very high-handed, cocky, inappropriate way. Um, or, or they can be done in, in, a, in a, a gentle way that, that is that walks alongside the person and doesn't try to condemn them or get one over on them, but, but to, to help them. You know, you could say, um, do you believe that torturing babies is wrong? Um, 
you know, I, I guess most people, if you push them long enough, would come to an affirmative answer and then say, well, you know, tell, tell me why that's wrong. Um, and it, people may struggle off people, of course it's wrong, you know, people will say, that's a ridiculous thing to say, but, you know, oh, oh, just, just tell me why, just humour me for a moment, explain to me why that's wrong. Um, and you know, it may be that a person comes to the position where they realise that uh, I can't argue for that. I can't, within my understanding of the world, I can't say that torturing babies is wrong. Um, and that would be a significant moment of realisation for them. So I guess there are some things that you can do when people are apathetic. Um, but it, it, it does depend on who it is and what the relationship's like. Bearing in mind, you know, the need to go out and engage with people and speak with them. Um, I find that when, when I get those sort of replies whereby people will say, well, that's fine for you, you know, I, I get my kicks or whatever I need out of doing this sort of thing. Very often a mishmash of different faiths, of course, cherry picking, as you say. But the issue for me is uh, when people say that is surely... Uh, to do with the consequences of those things. I mean, if we only ever talk about what, uh, what's going on underneath the sun, as you say in, in Ecclesiastes, then fine. Everyone can do whatever they want to do. But surely the point is uh, the eternal consequences of these. Surely that's what, what, where Christianity, for instance, would say, well, Actually, there's more to it than that. Otherwise, you're welcome to get your kicks out of whatever God you make. Sure. Isn't and, that, and that's the point. That we, otherwise, you could debate cleverly this way by saying, actually, you're, you're, in fact, very intolerant yourself. But then what? The point is, actually, there's an eternal consequence, we believe, to whatever God you've made. Absolutely. And I think Paul, again, is helpful there. So when, when he can get straight into Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, when he's talking in Acts 13 um, to, to a group of Jews who know the Old Testament, he, he, he doesn't start all that way back. He says, look, let me prove to you from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Or in Acts 2 where Peter's talking, let me prove to you that Jesus is the Christ. They cut to the heart, what must we do? Repent and believe. Um, I, I take it that in Acts 17 the reason that... Um, Paul doesn't do that, is that he, he knows that if he goes straight to Jesus is the Christ, he was raised from the dead, you need to believe in him, with a group of pagan philosophers, what, what comes out of his mouth is not going to be what hits their ears, because it's like saying, Jesus died for your sins, and so it's, oh, that's touching. That's, that's, that's such a, a, a wonderful thing. I feel so affirmed that he would do that for me. Do you know what I mean? If, if people haven't got the ideas in their, an understanding of the ideas that make sense of Jesus, dying for our sins, then we're communicating the words, but we're not communicating the idea, the truth of the gospel. So I completely agree with you. Um, you know, if, some, if someone does understand a Christian view of the world, then by all means present Christ crucified and, and plead with the person to, to repent and believe. 
but if those if that understanding isn't there um, then of course God can always by grace work in the life of anyone and it may be that through presenting uh, that the death and resurrection of Christ he, he wonderfully um, regenerates the person but I, I think the biblical pattern is different I think the biblical pattern is that we take account of where people are starting from and build up a view of the world that makes sense of the gospel taking them from where they are to the cross starting however far back we need to start to make it make sense for them men and women have conscience and conscience remains a great ally in this process as much as it may be damaged it remains a great ally as in Romans true <laughs> but I find that the modern person is uh, definitely there's some conscience that is active in some ways, but there's definitely with that then a sense of needing to, f- to be forgiven in what, it, you know, they wouldn't put that into words nowadays. And I find that uh, hence the tolerant, perhaps the tolerant society, I, I find that people are very, very willing to forgive themselves for things. It's perhaps a way of coping with the, the workings inside of them of their conscience. If the conscience is stirred, there needs then to be something that that uh, grants a sense of forgiveness and if there isn't God to do that because they've turned their back on him then it's almost that people have actually you know let themselves off yeah that's helpful I, I think I think when we talk about guilt most people understand a subjective state so guilt is something that I feel about myself whereas when, when the Bible talks about guilt it's, it's talking about the, the state of a relationship between me and God it's something outside me so one of the things that we need to do I think is to help people see that, that we're not just saying when we're saying Jesus can forgive you and you'll, you'll have no guilt we're not saying Jesus can make you feel better about yourself although of course you will but it's not about yourself it's, it's because of you've realised who he is and, and you're you're living for him and glorifying him. Uh, but it's, it's actually something outside you that's changing. It's, it's your relationship with God. Um, and I guess that's just one, of, one example of a word that when we use it and when most people use it, we mean different things. And so if we talk about guilt, you know, you're guilty, um, we're saying one thing, but people are hearing something else. So we, we need to be careful to explain what a Christian understanding of guilt is. Just build up this Christian worldview so that people can understand what we're saying when we, when we talk about Jesus. Entirely different tack, perhaps. I'd be interested to know on what you think, where you think that philosophy is going now. I, mean, I don't know what it feels like in Cambridge, but my feeling down on the, here on the south coast is that people are beginning to say, OK, if language is what constructs meaning, Let's construct our own meaning. So you get kind of um, Richard Dawkins clones who basically saying, you know, well, okay, modernism worked for a few hundred years. Why don't we say that mod- just declare this, this empiricist view to be, to be the right one? Which is more or less what Richard Dawkins saying. You don't seem to realise it doesn't really make sense. But you know, on the, on the other hand, I mean, I, I, I 
marked an essay last year, which was a preparation essay for a PhD, which was on the, um, on the syntax of the tarot. And the, the basic, it was a very good essay actually, one of the best essays I've read for a long time. Um, but the, the, um, the, the basic principle of this was that science was a Western invention, which it seemed to me the objection to, to this argument though was yes, but so is a PhD and so is a university. Um, in what possible category can a PhD make sense if you take such a view? And it certainly is a, is, is a problem. I mean, you know, it seems to me if you took this rad, sort of radical Derrida type position literally, you wouldn't do a PhD because a PhD is a construction of language. Um, well, and, yeah, again, it's, sorry, trying to construct meaning, it seems to me. It's really yeah, a, a, again, be careful. David is not saying that language is, is utterly useless or that nothing ever means anything. He's, he's just saying that language is never exact. It, it never delivers reality to us as it is. There, there's always a remainder. There's always something more. So, so, of course, if he were to be saying that language is utterly meaningless, then that would be an absurd thing to try and communicate using words, as you rightly say, but I think he's saying something a little more subtle than that, uh, which is that language never gives us direct access to reality. It, it, it always adds its two penneth, if you like. It, 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 we, always, we always get language's construction rather than some pure experience of, of, of what is out there. And, and I think you... you you can write meaningfully about that, as I was saying earlier, um, in, without completely undermining your position. Yeah. I, mean, I think the point I'm making, it seems to me people are now saying, if language is what we have, then language constructs its own meaning. Rather than, you know, that there is no meaning, that the only meaning can be the meaning that's constructed by language. Sure, sure. Um, you, you asked what what's sort of happening in philosophy today. Um, philosophy, like everything, has its fashions and every generation tries to define itself in contradistinction to its uh, forefathers. That's the way people make reputations for themselves. That's the way that things progress. Um, you know, you, you read the best thing that's been written to date, you try and improve on it, you try and change it. Um, What's happening today, as, as I very imperfectly understand it, is that people are bored of this idea um, that language, that this, this view of language, which cashes itself out in, in Derrida and other thinkers as a very, very circumspect ethics. Um, it's very difficult to, to be strident and to say anything with great confidence. And that the philosophers we're writing today are trying to, to regain that, that stridency. Um, and they're, they're using different ways of, of doing that. So, for example, rather than saying that reality such as it is, is, is at bottom linguistic, which is something that Derrida would say, uh, one, one philosopher writing at the moment is saying um, reality is at bottom mathematical and he uses the, the mathematical idea of set theory to try and understand being uh, and for him the, the way that he argues is that that allows him a more um, sort of robust 
position. And he, he defines himself in, in contradistinction to David as, as people do. So these things are always moving. Um, and it's, it's not that the people writing today completely reject everything that people like David are, are saying. Um, because philosophy is quite incestuous. You, you always sort of feed off the previous generation and change it a little bit. So a, a lot of the, the trajectory that's been covered to get to people like David is still there. But, but it is always changing. And Well, yeah, he. Um, Russell kind of gave up, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he? He does. He does quote Russell at points. Um, you know, things come and go, things come round again, don't they? It's like Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, things just get recycled and tweaked. So, yeah, I need to this to people are now talking about post-postmodernism. <laughs> I don't have any posts you can put in front of the book. Can I ask one really big question? Say, I don't know. <laughs> Why do we have philosophers? <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what's the point? Well. <laughs> Getting into the Ecclesiastes mood here. What's the point of philosophising? <laughs> to answer questions like that. <laughs> but you haven't. <laughs> Have you come to any conclusion? Oh, philosophers don't come to conclusions. Exactly. <laughs> So can we just, I just say on behalf of everybody, thank you very much for a very stimulating and comprehensive uh, presentation, which we've really enjoyed, and uh, um, particularly those insights from, from the Bible I, I found very, very helpful. And thank you for your answers. So can we just say a thank you to... So if you'd like to be kept up to date on the next Be Thinking talk, please see Anthony make sure he's got your email address and we'll keep you informed. But um, just for now, thank you very much. <laughs>